Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast. In our 18th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and as uh, we know, this is Donald Trump's fourth indictment. On August the 14th, Fonnie Willis, District Attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, which contains most of Atlanta, indicted Donald Trump on racketeering charges, including election interference. The former president turned himself in Thursday night at the Fulton County Jail to be booked on felony charges in connection with efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. Prisoner number PO1135809 was booked, fingerprinted, and photographed for a mugshot within minutes, according to jail records. The six foot three, 215 pound Trump was quickly released, according to the records, and he was in and out of the jail in about 20 minutes. Of the four indictments confronting Donald Trump, the Georgia case is the most inescapable because it's not a federal crime. And thus the future President Trump can't order the Justice Department to drop it or pardon himself. Also, he recently lost his bid to have this trial held in a federal court. And while his legal perils have proven to be a major distraction for the Republican primaries, there are some on the right that claim his accountability for the January 6th Capitol riot is just another partisan dispute. This may all prove moot as two prominent conservative legal scholars have made the case that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution disqualifies for President Trump from public office. Last week, Lawrence Kaplan, a tax attorney in Palm Beach County, Florida, filed one of the first legal challenges to disqualify Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential race under a clause in the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. Per Kaplan's filing, President Trump former President Trump, both engaged in an insurrection and gave aid and comfort to other individuals who were engaging in such, such actions within the clear meaning of those terms as defined in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Assuming that the public record to date is accurate and we have no evidence to the contrary, Trump is no longer eligible to seek the office of the President of the United States or of any other state of the Union. Now, to help us better understand uh, the legal positions that are flying back and forth and Trump's legal entanglements, we have invited back Indiana University Professor Emeritus Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar and law professor who held the Harry Prater professorship and is a past recipient of the Law School Gavel Award. Professor Hoffman, as always, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Glad to be back. And, and I'm so glad that during this hour, we can finally put this all to rest and we can go ahead and move with legal proceedings and, and call this all done. But since uh, since last week, there has been more conversation about this 14th Amendment um, particular angle to prohibit him from running, as well as the fact that he is 
testing and pushing against the parameters that have been set on him, where to me it seems that the next big thing that's going to happen is that he's going to be hauled back into court to answer why he is not uh, holding to his probation uh, uh, parameters and uh, and give an ex- explanation to the judge. What's your overall thought about all this? We are, again, in, in an area of our history that we've never been in before, except for the Civil War. We've never really been in this type of legal peril. Well, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the the only even close, even semi-close precedents to um, some of what we're now seeing um, in these cases involving Mr. Trump um, are, you know, parallels that that take us back to the Civil War, and 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 it's probably fair to say that our country hasn't been as you know, openly divided as um, it is now since the Civil War or since the the period immediately after the Civil War, the Reconstruction uh, era. Um, And interestingly, um, some of the very same legal issues that um, are now being debated in connection with Mr. Trump are legal issues that trace directly back to the post-Civil War era. So you mentioned the 14th Amendment, and we're certainly going to want to talk about that at some length uh, today. Uh, The 14th Amendment is one of those three amendments um, that were added to the Constitution immediately after the Civil War. We refer to them as the Civil War Amendments, although in some ways they were really Reconstruction Amendments. They were put in the Constitution um, as a direct attempt to try to remedy and um, and prevent for all time the kind of abuses that Black Americans had suffered in America. The, the point of the Reconstruction or Civil War amendments was to was to fix those uh, problems and and hopefully ensure that they would never happen again. And and you know one of the provisions in the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, is one that says anybody who participated in the kind of insurrection, in, in an insurrection against the United States, uh, should never be allowed to serve again in um, in public office. And, um, you know, that's a provision that was designed, obviously, first and foremost, to prevent people who had participated in the Confederacy who had, um, you know, turned their back on our country in an effort to try to preserve the evil institution of slavery. Um, it was designed to prevent those people from ever again having the, their hands on, on the, uh, you know, the, the levers of power. And um, and yet the, the amendment doesn't, you know, it's not limited to people who participated in, in the Confederacy. It's not limited to them. Um, it was something that um, was intended to have future application as well. But but the 14th Amendment language doesn't actually give us any clear definition of who counts as an insurrectionist, who counts as someone who has acted against um, you know, the lawful government of the United States. It's as if you know, the people who wrote that language, they knew who they were talking about. There was no doubt about, right? 
they knew who the bad guys were. It was the people who had participated in in the Confederacy. And um, and so they didn't feel any need to give any more definition to the term. They could just say, if you've been in an insurrection, you cannot serve again. You cannot be uh, close to the, the levers of power. And everyone knew who that meant. But today, um, it, it's a little more complicated. And it's complicated because due to our political divide, divide due to our incredible tribalism, the kind of um, split that's occurred in American politics, you know, somewhere close to half of the American people don't think that Donald Trump committed insurrection. Um, you know, the three of us may agree on that point, but um, there's a whole lot of people out there in America who don't agree. And so that's going to present a real problem. Now, the, the article you mentioned by the two law professors, you know, it, it's, it was a remarkable piece of work and, and a, a brilliant piece of work by two very smart um, people. I, I happen to know both of them. Um, one of those professors, uh, Will Bode, um, is the son of the late Patrick Bode, who was one of my longtime colleagues on the faculty at the IU School of Law. Um, and Will is now a, a very famous professor in his own right. Um, the other, William Stokes Paulson, is someone that we actually tried to hire at the law school unsuccessfully, unfortunately. Um, they're both brilliant people. They're both uh, people who, uh, especially in the law school world, lean towards the conservative side, which is why they're, they, they have some associations with the Federalist Society. A, a group of, of conservative lawyers and professors. Um, but nevertheless, they've come out publicly now and um, said in their article that they've researched the history of the 14th Amendment and it does apply to Donald Trump and he is not eligible to um, serve as president, which means he shouldn't be on the ballot. It would be like putting you know, a dead person on the ballot or a baby on the ballot, someone who is not eligible to serve should not be on the ballot. Um, we'll have to see where that goes. Um, I, I, I don't know for sure, but if I were guessing, I would guess that uh, these two law professors wrote this article to try to provide other conservatives, people who maybe are part of the Republican Party, to give them a, a, a kind of an off-ramp to, to Mr. Trump, um, to give them a reason to oppose him that um, is perhaps more compelling than some of the reasons that have so far proven unsuccessful. You know, all the way through this period, as, as Mr. Trump has first tried to overturn the 2020 election and then, you know, turned his focus on the 2024 election, at every step of the way, I've, I've wondered what is wrong with the other candidates, with the other politicians in the Republican Party? They know that they can't possibly achieve their own personal goals and ambitions um, unless they take down Mr. Trump. That's obvious. And yet at every single step of the way, um, when presented with an opportunity to turn on him, and to try to put him down and get him out of the way, um, by and large, other than a few kind of fringe candidates who don't really count, 
Um, none of the leading players in the Republican Party or in the conservative movement have been willing to take Mr. Trump on. And I think maybe, possibly, who knows, maybe these two law professors were trying to give people a new and perhaps more compelling argument to stand up to him and um, a reason to say, no, he should not be our candidate. It, that article was not aimed at at people like right, you and me. Right, right. Um, it wasn't aimed at people who already would never possibly uh, vote for Mr. Trump. This article was aimed at people who currently support him or who currently tolerate him if they don't support him. It was an article aimed at trying to trying to basically give give such people a spine, give them a reason to stand up and take him on. And um, who knows whether any of that will actually play out. You mentioned that there's a uh, lawsuit already been filed um, by a man who argues that Trump isn't eligible on the basis of the, the 14th Amendment argument and should be removed from the ballot in the state. That's good. I mean, I'm glad someone has picked up the ball and run with it at least that far. But I have to say, at the end of the day, um, I don't think the courts are the ones who are going to save us from a second Trump presidency. I don't think the courts are going to use their powers and step into the middle of this mess and and try to get Mr. Trump, um, you know, declared ineligible or removed from from the ballot. My guess is that courts are pretty much going to try to avoid this question um, because it would put them at the center of a political controversy, which is a place courts typically don't like to be. Um, and that includes the U.S. Supreme Court. They're not going to want to be in the middle of this. Um, but but the, the value of the argument isn't that it's going to win in court. The value of the argument is that it might give the Republicans a reason to turn away from Mr. Trump and nominate someone else for president. That, that's an interesting perspective, and I agree with you uh, on that, that it's uh, sort of signaling to the base for those that maybe held their breath uh, and voted the second time in a, in a failed election attempt by, by Donald Trump. Um, and then, too, and maybe it was a signal of sorts, um, not an official letter of, I forget the legal phrase, uh, a brief to the Supreme Court on this. Uh, but maybe for those who are higher in scholarly thought that, hey, consider this. Um, because here's a man that did extraordinary things, unorthodox things that has, that have placed us in this really weird space in history. At no other time has anyone ever done that. And here we are. So it, it, I think it's well-deserved that we consider something that's unorthodox, unusual, to check them. Uh, and, and I am, you know, I, I, we are living in a time that I, I, I have nothing to compare to except Richard Nixon. But Nixon read the tea leaves, as they say, and had a visitation by three friends who said, hey, uh, Dick, it's time to step down. And he listened because he was wise. He was smart enough to know. Um, but then you mentioned William Bowen, and, and I have to say, um, I, I had the privilege of knowing his father back when I was uh, at SPIA, um, and this was when they called it SPIA years ago, 
there was a infamous case in Bloomington involving uh, baby baby Doe with passive euthanasia. And I took that on as a paper and I and I made an appointment. I went and spoke to Patrick Bode about that very case. Uh, and because it was so close to home and it hit the national airwaves, he was the most um, responsive, uh, understanding. He took deliberate time to just help me ex- understand the different positions. But uh, when I saw William Bode's name, I said, I wonder if there's a connection. Sure enough, there was. I'm glad you pointed that out. But yeah, uh, I, I, Pat Bode was a, he was a great man. And um, oh, I want to apologize. I said William Stokes. It's Michael Stokes. Michael Paulson Stokes. Yeah. The other the other professor's name. Sorry about that, Michael. So so here we are, and and more and more news outlets, of course, because it's it's finding its way to the upper fold of the paper. Uh, they're covering this this position, and before you know it, it's going to be on the talking head shows and, and they're going to have lively debate and it's going to bring up all this conjecture. Then they're going to start asking legislators what's their opinion. And this is going to be one more, it's a three ring circus. It's a four ring circus now. So this is yet another ring in the circus that's going to be brought to bear. Um, but those are good points you bring out. And, and that's been weighing on me heavy. It's, you know, this man has brought us to a weird place a strange place where we are more divided due to his doings. I'm sorry. I mean, and, and I'll tell anyone, you know, the, the closest we're going to get is at a professional sporting event. We're going to all set aside blue and red and whatever, and we're going to cheer for our favorite team. Uh, but other than that, what have we become? And that's just my observation. And I defer now to William. I know William has at least 12 questions for you, uh, Professor. 13. Hoffman. 13. Okay. So, Professor Hoffman, as a, as a non-legal mind, when I, when I read Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it, to me, it can't be any more black and white. Um, but I'm wondering if, if uh, any decision is going to hinge on what the definition of is is, if you know what I mean. Um, cause it starts off the section three starts off pretty clearly to me. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, uh, so on and so forth. And then it says why engage in insurrection or, or rebellion. So what's, what kind of wiggle room do they have there? Well, I don't think, I mean, I, I agree with you. The language is what it is, and and it, it's it's written in a clear manner. Um, you know, no person shall, um, as you say, uh, hold any of these federal offices or any state office um, who, having previously taken an oath as a federal official or as uh, a member of state legislature or another state official to support the Constitution, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And then it says Congress can remove this disability by a mm-hmm. two-thirds vote. So so let's look at it. It, it. It's clearly written, but it leaves a lot unsaid. One of the things it leaves unsaid is who decides whether this applies or doesn't apply. You know, the provision doesn't say 
a federal court may may decide or you know congress may decide that someone is ineligible it just says they are ineligible um you know no person shall be one of these officials federal or state if they engage in an insurrection or rebellion um it it just says that as if it's obvious and again at the time it was obvious who they were talking about when this was written back you know in the days after the civil war but today it depends on who you ask whether uh your answer whether you'll get the answer that Donald Trump did engage in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States or whether you'll get the answer that he did not that's something that that people disagree about today a lot of people and so the the 14th amendment section 3 is not self executing as we say in in legal terms i'm sorry sorry i said that backwards it is self executing it it basically says you can't serve and it doesn't require there's nothing in it that requires anybody to make a decision about whether someone is an insurrectionist before the 14th amendment kicks in it kicks in on its own and so the argument the two law professors have made is that any government official anywhere in the united states who has some control over printing a, an election ballot or over you know approving some election um machinery in their state or in their local area anyone who plays that role can say oh i think the 14th amendment makes this person ineligible um and therefore uh refuse to to put that that person's name on the ballot now at some point that choice that decision by an election official let's say is going to wind up in a in a legal case that's going to end up going through the court system and eventually make its way to the US Supreme Court that's how it will work if if if, a, if an election official you know you you pick the location i mean it's not going to happen in a in a deeply red state you know no one in in Oklahoma no one in Texas no one in Florida is going to stand up and say I'm not going to allow the ballot to have Donald Trump's name on it because of the 14th amendment nobody's going to do that I guess maybe 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 in whatever county Austin Texas is in they might but nowhere else in those places is someone going to do that it's going to be someone in, in you know California or in Massachusetts or in some other liberal state who's going to say okay I've read this article they're right Donald Trump's ineligible to be president therefore his name cannot be on the ballot and that person's going to try to remove trump from the ballot and then someone's going to sue them over that and that's going to take it into the courts and then as i said earlier my prediction would be that although a few courts might be willing to make decisions about that most courts are going to try to duck the issue they're going to delay they're going to find reasons why the controversy isn't ready for adjudication um hoping hoping that election day will come and go and the issue will go away because Trump won't win because he'll lose the election again that's what they'll be hoping for and um and e- even if it makes it to the US Supreme Court that court has lots of ways 
to avoid deciding issues. In fact, one of the ways that they can avoid deciding an issue, even a constitutional issue like what does this provision mean in the 14th Amendment, is that they can simply say it's a political question and therefore the court won't decide it. That's one of the tricks they have. And I could easily imagine our Supreme Court doing that um, and then hoping that the issue will go away on its own because he will lose. I guess the biggest, if there's one point that I would want to make today more than any other, you know, I'm a lawyer and and a law professor, and I've been that pretty much my whole adult life. Um, And I believe in the law and I believe in the rule of law. And I think it should apply to everyone. And so, you know, it's great to see Donald Trump in a mugshot and to, to watch him do a perp walk and, you know, do all the stuff that criminal defendants have to do. But I have to say, at the end of the day, I don't think the legal system, I don't think the criminal justice system, I don't think the 14th Amendment is going to save us from Donald Trump being president again for four more years. Because I don't think courts are going to step in and, and try to prevent that from happening, become an active player in that sense. I think if you want to avoid four more years of, of Donald Trump as president, you have to do it at the ballot box. You have to do it through the elective process. You have to defeat him. You have to win a damn election. You have to defeat him. And I mean, that's the golden stake. That's the silver bullet, whatever you want to call it. That's how you, that's how you end this. You end this by making sure that he doesn't win the election. And that's why as much as I love the 14th amendment argument, it's, it's really more a political argument at this point than a legal argument in the sense that it's an argument for people to step up either to either to remove him as their candidate in the Republican Party or ultimately to defeat him at at the uh, at the ballot box. That's really it's just one more argument not to let this man be president. But I don't think judges are going to save us from him. I think we have to save ourselves. That's what it's going to come down to. Well, um, and I understand I, and I will we're about to go to an ID. Um but I think back when when Al Gore ran for president, the courts came in, made a determination. And then I'm also thinking that, um, you know, again, I go back to all the extraordinary, extraordinarily dumb things he's done, the embarrassing things he's done. And it's, it would be almost poetic justice for this to take place. But I, I get your point. And before I go further into that, I do want to let our listeners know that if you've been as uh, entertained and mesmerized as William and I, as we're listening to this eminent scholar, you're, you're listening to IU Professor Emeritus Joseph Hoffman. Uh, he's a recipient of numerous distinctions, and he's been joining us uh, over the years uh, to talk about politics and the Constitution. And at no other time have our conversations been so relevant than, than they are now, but um we're talking about former President Donald Trump's legal quagmire and whether or not he is eligible to run again for the office of President of the United States or eligible to run for state tax assessor. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway. Let, can I just say one thing about Bush against Gore? Because I've, I've thought a lot about that case over the years. You know, it, it, 
it was a hugely controversial thing for the Supreme Court to do to to resolve that that unsettled and disputed election. Um, I think the court would have loved not to have to do that. I think the justices would have been delighted had that case not plopped itself, you know, on their doorstep um, and forced them to to make it. Now, once they made once they were in the position where it was unclear who was going to be the president. And here we are, you know, a month after the election and the whole world is waiting to know who's, who's win, who, who, who's won. Um, once it, once it kind of forced itself upon them, they went ahead and they made a decision by five to four. And most people, myself included, look back on that and, and view that as a case where the court really did inject itself into politics. I mean, this was, you know, five Republican appointed justices voting to, to end the election in a way that ensured that their guy would, would end up being the president. But that doesn't change the fact that they would have preferred not to be in that position of having to make that decision. Courts are universally, now with very rare exceptions, ju- judges do not want to be put in the political hot seat. And that's really all I'm saying here is that I think our current Supreme Court and, and you know, Chief Justice John Roberts, everything he does, everything he does demonstrates that he would like to keep the court out of the limelight, out of the headlines as much as possible. Now, he's failed at that. He's failed. He's he's not been successful because he's got conservative colleagues on the court who are perfectly happy to be in the headlines making bold decisions like overruling Roe versus Wade and so forth. But but Chief Justice Roberts, if he had his druthers, court never would have gone there in that case, and they would not get involved in this either. Now, if they're forced to, well, you know, they'll do what they have to do. But I think they'll try to avoid it as much as they can. Uh, let me mention one other thing about, you know, going back to the theme of, you know, we're replaying the Civil War in some ways. Uh, By the time people are listening to this on Monday evening, there will have been a hearing in the federal court in Atlanta about whether some or all of the defendants in the Atlanta criminal case, the one filed by Prosecutor Willis involving the um, um, attempts to overturn the election in the state of Georgia, about whether that criminal case should be transferred to the federal district court in Atlanta. There will have been a hearing on Monday about that. It's actually the first hearing. Monday is going to be the first day when we're actually going to hear some of the evidence against Mr. Trump and these other defendants. The Georgia case is quite unusual. You know, there are four four criminal cases against Mr. Trump right now. He's been indicted in four different courts with four different prosecutors, or four, four different cases. Two of those cases federal, both of them uh, involving uh, Prosecutor Smith, Special Prosecutor Smith, and two of them state cases, state criminal cases, the one in New York and the one in Georgia. But but two of those four cases, the one um, in Georgia and one of the two federal cases, are, are kind of related because they both involve what happened when Mr. Trump tried to overturn the election. So there's the federal case involving the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, filed by Special Prosecutor Smith. And then there's the state case in Georgia involving the phone calls and the other efforts to overturn the, the election in Georgia. But those are both about kind of the same issue of 
how can Mr. Trump overturn the results of a lawful election? And and yet the two prosecutors, the federal prosecutor and the state prosecutor, went about what they're doing in a very in very different ways. The federal case has only been filed against Mr. Trump alone. There's like, you know, a host of unindicted co-conspirators that we have to kind of sniff around and try to guess who they are. Um, but only Mr. Trump was indicted by Special Prosecutor Smith in that January 6th case. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Prosecutor Willis charged 19 people Mr. Trump and 18 others with crimes connected with the attempt to overturn the election in Georgia. She brought them all in and actually used a special kind of statute called the RICO statute, which is an, a, a statute about criminal organizations. It's a statute about people working together to commit crimes. And she used that statute to get all 19 of these people into one indictment. And, you know, she's going to sit them all at defense table and make them all, um, you know, at least that's her hope, is that she can try them all together. That's standard operating procedure for prosecutors. When you've got a complicated case involving multiple people, you want to have them all together so that um, so that there's some guilt by association, and also so that you can pressure some of those defendants, maybe some of the smaller fish, so to speak, to turn on the others and maybe testify against them, maybe turn state's evidence and so forth. Standard operating procedure. Prosecutors do this kind of thing every day. Why then did the federal prosecutor choose such a radically different approach? Well, my guess is because the federal prosecutor, Mr. Smith, um, wanted to keep it simple. He wanted to focus on Trump and Trump alone and not get things complicated by the presence of other defendants in other types of contexts and situations, trying to make it less of a circus. We're going to see the beginning of that circus in the Georgia case on Monday, on the very day that, you know, that, that people will be listening to our conversation. Um, because, because one of those defendants, Mr. Meadows, who was Trump's chief of staff at the time and was a participant in the phone calls and the meetings in Georgia. Mr. Meadows has filed a motion to have his case transferred from state court to federal court. Now, what's the basis for that? Interestingly, it goes back to the Civil War. After the Civil War um, and during Reconstruction, federal government officials in the South uh, who were trying to reconstruct the South um, were subject to all kinds of abuses, physical abuses, legal abuses. Southerners didn't like them. And they would sometimes accuse them of crimes they never committed, um, you know, file lawsuits against them for things that didn't happen, just as a way to kind of mess around with them and, and sh show them how unpopular they were in the South. So Congress passed a law that said that if you're a federal official doing your job and you get either sued or prosecuted in a state court, and they were thinking of Southern, you know, post-Civil War state courts. Um, you have the right to ask to have your case moved into the federal court where you will have a hospitable judge, someone who works for the federal government, not one of these local yokel state, you know, judges in Alabama or Mississippi or whatever. That's the law Mike Meadows is now, Mark Meadows is now invoking to try to get his Georgia criminal charge moved into the federal court. He's saying, I was doing my job. I was working for the president. He was still the president at the time, of course. He hadn't yet, you know, his term hadn't ended yet. And Meadows says, I needed to be in those meetings. I needed to be on those phone calls because I was just doing my job. 
as a federal government official, and therefore I get I have the right to be moved into a federal court. Mr. Trump hasn't asked for that yet in the Georgia case. He asked for it in the New York case and got turned down, uh, the New York state case. But he hasn't asked for it in the Georgia case yet. Um, there's at least one other defendant who has asked for it. But this is going to be kind of the beginning of what I think Mr. Smith was worried about, which is a kind of complicated circus of legal proceedings when you've got 19 defendants, each of whom might have a slightly different interest, you know, each of whom might have slightly different strategy. It'll be interesting, but this will be the first chance to actually hear some of the evidence because Prosecutor Willis has to go into federal court on Monday and explain why this case isn't about people who were doing their job. It wasn't about that at all. She's going to have to argue that these people were acting outside the scope of their official job because they were trying to get a man elected who hadn't actually been elected. They were trying to get a candidate to be the president who had actually lost the election. That has nothing to do with your actual job as a federal government official. That's the argument she's going to be making. And she has to show some of her evidence. She's she's actually got to bring in some witnesses and some statements to try to show that. But again, this goes all the way back. You know, we haven't had these kind of fights for a very long time, going back to the Civil War. Wow, that was a lot to uh, digest. But I want to ask a question about the... Um about the federal case in, in D.C. Donald Trump has been very vocal in uh, attacking the judge, the prosecutor, uh, and even their families. And Judge Chutkin, I think her name is, she has threatened to move the case up if he, if he violates uh, her orders. However, if she were to put a gag order on him, uh, what would do you have any idea what that would look like? How I would, would read? That's a really tough question to answer. Uh, not that I not because I'm you know afraid of answering it, but just because it's it's very complicated. Again, we are in uncharted waters, as we seem to always be when it comes to Mr. Trump. Gag orders, various kinds of judicial orders telling people not to reveal certain kinds of information, putting certain kinds of evidence under seal. This kind of thing happens all the time. It's normal. It's routine. And so on one level, um, the judge in D.C. or any of the other judges, if they did something like that, they'd be doing something that judges do every day to maintain the interests of justice. It's done to protect the defendant's right, above all, to a fair trial, but also the government's right to a fair trial as well. And so that's totally routine. What makes it unprecedented, I would say, or virtually so, is the fact that at the same moment that he's a criminal defendant in all of these cases, Mr. Trump is also the leading candidate of one of the two main political parties for president of the United States. Um, you know, it's a reality. I wish it weren't so, but he is the leading candidate to be the Republican nominee for president. Unless something bizarre happens, he will be the Republican nominee for president. There's no one else who is showing any kind of uh, ability to challenge him in his own party. So, you know, that means that a, a, a gag order, any kind of order that suppresses 
Mr. Trump in his ability to talk about what's happening in these cases and to talk about, you know, his opinion about whether they're a witch hunt or whatever is basically silencing one of the two leading candidates for president of the United States in the middle of an election campaign. And I can assure you that although these judges are absolutely duty bound to try to protect the integrity of the proceedings over which they're presiding and will do so to the best of their abilities, every one of these judges, um, and I would say every one of the prosecutors, are known to be stand-up people who are good lawyers, who know what they're doing, and will do their job. But I think these judges will bend over backwards not to be in a position where they can be accused of interfering with the presidential election. And that's why it'll be very complicated for a judge to issue such an order. I think it will, if it comes, it will be done in a very narrow and very carefully defined way. You know, you cannot talk about this or this or this. There might even be a list of specific information that 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 the judge might say to Mr. Trump, you're not allowed to talk about. But I don't think it's going to go much further than that because I don't think a judge is going to want to be in that position of arguably stifling um, one of the two leading presidential candidates. You know, you know that, that's interesting. I want to circle back to um, the 14th Amendment for a moment. And interestingly, the loudest voices have been the conservative voices on this matter. Um, uh, for instance, there have been two more legal scholars, retired conservative federal judge J. Michael Ludick and Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Lawrence Tribe, who have been making the, the same case for implementing uh, that particular clause in the 14th Amendment. But a, a contrary view from Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell, he wrote that while he has a low regard for Trump, Letting secretaries of state disqualify political opponents from the ballot would be profoundly anti-democratic. He doesn't believe January 6th rises to the level of an insurrection, warning that disqualifying Trump could empower partisans to seek disqualification every time a politician supports or speaks in support of the objectives of a political riot. Um, yeah, I, 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 get, I get his point. But again, and we've been saying it all night, um, everybody's hoping that the outcome of an election will solve this once and for all. Yeah. But what's yep. to say I mean, that... I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know Larry Tribe very well, but I do know Judge Ludic pretty well, or I used to anyway. Um, and um, I have the utmost respect for him, as you know, I'm sure, Judge mm -hmm. Ludig was also the most important person who personally advised Vice President Mike Pence on January 6th that he did not, in fact, have the legal or constitutional authority to uh, stop the, the counting of the ballots or to alter the counting of the ballots the way that Mr. Trump wanted Pence to. Mm -hmm. uh, that, was, that was Judge Ludig. We can thank him perhaps even more than Mike Pence. Mike Pence called Mike Ludig to find out, what should I do? What can I do? And, and Judge Ludig said, you can't do anything. You have to just count the ballots as they are, as they are presented. 
And um, and so we can thank him for what happened on January 6th, that for the fact that our democracy survived that attack. Right. Um, and and I have the utmost, as I said, I have the utmost respect for him. Um, McConnell also is a very, very respectable legal mind. Um, it's it's back to the point we were discussing earlier. Uh, reasonable minds will disagree about whether or not Mr. Trump is disqualified by uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's not like it was after the Civil War. So, um, you know, at that point, um, these arguments are being made not because people think it's actually going to play out as as a legal issue, but because um, it gives people a reason to look elsewhere, to, to go for somebody else. And, you know, it would have been nice if during the first presidential debate on the Republican side, if anybody other than the fringe candidates had stepped up and said, you know, I've supported Trump all the way, but at some point, you know, he's gone too far and this has to end. It would have been nice if someone would have said that. But other than candidates who aren't even drawing, you know, 1% in the poll, uh, nobody was willing to say that, you know, that they asked him who, if, if Trump is the nominee, will you support him? And all the hands went up, except again, for a couple of fringe people who don't count. All the hands went up. So, yeah, uh, to your point, so, uh, so 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 we got to win it at the election, and we're not going to win it, and we're not going to win it at the primary stage, right? Oh, yeah. We're not going oh, yeah. to Absolutely. win it because Republicans are going to wake Absolutely. up and say Absolutely. enough. We're going to win it at the general election, and that's what this is all about. So so then, convincing the independents and mm-hmm. those Republicans who held their breath and voted for him in twenty. Uh, but you know, Brett, Brett Baer, um, had asked the candidates that, that very question, you know, would they support him if, if he was convicted? And Asa Hutchinson, um, he gathered a lot of cheers and boos. There were some cheers for his statement of, I'm not going to support somebody who's been convicted of a serious felony or who's, who is disqualified under our constitution, thus hinting his subtle support. Uh, sort of veiled support for the uh, 14th Amendment. And then Dan Quell even uh, offered advice to to Mike Pence, um, which was kind of straight to the point. I said, look, you know, you're vice president. You can't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> and, and I guess maybe he redeemed himself from, from the, the potato potato remark. But uh, it was, <laughs> it, yeah. that uh, was. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the statement by candidate Hutchinson, who, you know, as nice a guy as he seems to be, he, he's not going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. That's not going to happen. Um, but, you know, he said, well, I, I couldn't support someone who's, who was convicted of a crime. I, I wish it were true that that Mr. Trump might be convicted of a crime before the election. I don't think oh, that's, that's likely point. either. Point. I think that it's extremely likely at probably a 99% level that uh, none of these criminal cases are going to end up resolved. They're not going to even you know, be in trial before the election in the fall of 2024. Even the run-of-the-mill criminal case rarely gets to trial within a year. Um, and that's, you know, that's a case that's simple, straightforward. And these are not that. These are complicated. The evidence is complicated. There are going to be tons of motions. And, you know, 
the likelihood that any of these cases are going to actually end up in trials before November of 2024, I think I think that likelihood is very, very small. Well, well, well to William's point, um, the gag order, if, if one of the stipulations is if you can't keep your mouth shut and stop um, these veiled attacks against opponents, against judges, against you know, attorneys, whatever, then we'll speed up the proceedings. It, yeah, that, it, that's interesting. It's a, it's a good threat, and and it, it might be the kind of threat that is being wielded to try to get Mr. Trump's attention and to get him to think about the consequences of, of his words and his, his deeds. But at the end of the day, no judge, no judge is going to willingly go forward with a speedy trial that they think would compromise the rights of, of a defendant. And ultimately, that will be the thing that will prevent these trials from actually taking place as quickly as people would like them to. Because there will have to be some litigation about what evidence is admissible, what evidence is protected by national security or by executive privilege, right? There are going to be a myriad of arguments about the evidence, about the definitions of the crimes, about uh, whether certain witnesses are allowed to testify or, or whether Mr. Trump can shield them from uh, subpoenas or other, other ways of getting them to testify. I, all of that's going to have to be litigated. And no judge, even even if they're upset with Mr. Trump over his behavior before trial, no judge is going to rush a case forward to trial if it might compromise the rights of the defendants. Why would you do that? Because if you do that, you're just ensuring that that defendant's going to win on appeal and you're going to have to do it all over again. Right. So that, that right. isn't going to happen. And none of these judges are that petty to, to basically change the rules of the game just because they're mad at Trump or what he says on, on Twitter or X or whatever the hell Elon Musk calls it now. I don't think that's likely to happen. So I, I'm not holding my breath about these cases making it to trial before November 2024. Um, yeah. If, uh, to, be, to be fair, if Mr. Trump really wants them to get to trial, it could probably happen. I mean, the, the system could make that happen. But if he doesn't want it to happen, and he's the one that at some point files a motion for delay or whatever, and every so far, everything has suggested that he's going to want to delay it. Um, if that's the case, then, uh, then it'll probably get delayed because you can't kind of ram the defendant into a speedy trial unless they really want that. Now, Obviously, Mr. Trump wants to delay it all because he doesn't want to be labeled a convicted felon before the election. But also, he wants to delay it in the hopes that he can make it all go away. Uh, Trump's, you know, mode of operation for his whole life, his whole adult life, has been to basically delay, 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 so that you ultimately don't have to take any consequences for what you did. If you delay it long enough, people go away, people forget. Um, the issue disappears. And in this case, the federal cases, obviously, he's hoping that he'll win the election in 2024, and then he'll be able to direct the Justice Department, his new attorney general, he'll be able to direct that person, whoever it may be, to simply drop all the actions against him. Um, or, or, 
um, or pardon himself, but, but that's an untested legal question. We don't know whether he'd get away with that or not. Um, the state cases are trickier, obviously, because he can neither um, stop them from happening nor pardon himself for those. But but most reputable legal scholars, I think, would agree that at a minimum, Trump gets a temporary get-out-of-jail-free card if he wins the presidency because you can't allow a state prosecutor or a state criminal justice system to make it impossible for an elected president of the United States to carry out their constitutional mission. That simply can't be. Um, you can't allow that. So um, if Mr. Trump wins the, the, the presidency again, um, then probably the state cases uh, go into um, some kind of a stay situation and would be stayed for the entirety of his time in office. And so, again, that's one reason why he wants to win so badly. Um, we have a few more minutes left, and uh, you mentioned Chief Justice Roberts uh, sort of thinking what his what is his mindset concerning this, not to embroil the court and something that is deemed as political. But sitting on his court is a gentleman by the name of Clarence Thomas, whose very involvement with this, to me, casts a shadow. I mean, he should recuse himself from this, given his past, given the revelations about his uh, private, quote-unquote, life, that things that he's never divulged. And I, I would have to think that that, in some way, uh, hampers him from being fair and impartial, because we don't know who's pulling the strings. And don't forget about his wife. That's right. Yes, of course you're right. Um, and I think I, I think most objective observers, even those who lean towards the conservative side of the spectrum, are embarrassed by what's been revealed about um, Justice Thomas and his connections, his his friendships, so to speak. Um, and of course, you can't say that you know Supreme Court justices have to have wives who don't have their own lives and their own careers. I mean, that would be wrong. But um, but at the same time, we've never had, to to our knowledge, we've never had a a justice's spouse who has been so deeply involved in the political system um, while her husband, her spouse, has been serving on the court. Um, as in as in this situation, so this is also rather unprecedented. It would be nice. Uh, it would be the right thing to do for Justice Thomas to recuse himself from political cases. Um, I would say the same thing, of course, about Justice Alito, who's had some of the same kinds of revelations emerge. Um, sure. But it would be nice if if those folks would would have the you know the honesty and the integrity to recuse themselves. Unfortunately. Under our governmental system, nobody can tell them to do that. They have to choose to do it on their own. And um, they are, in a sense, above the law. Um, that's that's a reality. It's an unfortunate reality, but it is a reality. We have um, possibly all three minutes left. And before I turn it over to you, uh, Professor Hoffman, for your final observations on this whole thing, um, I, I thought I'd never say this, but I have to say, I still look at our American political system and judicial system as the best in the world uh, right now. I mean, it should be self-correcting, um, and let's hope it is. The syst- I, I, I agree with you. I haven't lost faith. I haven't lost faith. We've seen a lot of bad things happen in the past few years and continue to happen. But the system hasn't yet completely failed us, you know. 
January 6th, it could have, but it didn't. The institutions held. The institutions survived. And we got through it. And I haven't yet lost faith. I, I've had my doubts, but I haven't yet lost faith. And your final, um, anything that we've not covered that in a, a two minutes or, or less, you can kind of just put it out there for a listen. I, I'll, I'll keep it short. I, I obviously this is compelling, you know, news. Um, what's happening literally day by day. Um, you know, what happened today, Monday? I wish I knew what happened. I don't yet know, but by the time people are listening to this, they'll know what happened on Monday. Um, it's all compelling and it's, you know, it's, it's the story of our times. It's history in the making. But at the same time, I want to caution everyone listening not to get your hopes up that these legal proceedings are what's going to save us. Um, they're probably not. The, the law is going to do its job and the rule of law will prevail and prosecutors and judges and juries and, and appellate courts are all going to do what they think is right. And that's a good thing. And that's where our faith, you know, lies. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's, you know, that that's not the main event. It's not the main event. It's kind of a sideshow in some ways. A satisfying one when we see Trump in a mugshot, but it's a sideshow nevertheless. The real action, the real main event comes in November of 2024. We got to all get out there and vote. It's that simple. And on that note, we will consider that the last uh, statement for the day. And we want to thank IU Professor Emeritus Joseph Hoffman, an intimate and an eminent, excuse me, a scholar and recipient of numerous distinctions for joining us to discuss not only former President Donald Trump's legal quagmire, but his eligibility to run again for the office of the President of the United States. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea, an event, or happening for us to share, please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Once again, the email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. HB.org. Our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHV News Department Director Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Epium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea, and be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.